So do you really believe it? Do you really mean what you just sang? That because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and because of your participation in his resurrection through your union with him, has he scattered fear and gloom out of your lives? Or do you still struggle with fear, sadness, fearing the darkness? Do you now not doubt him? Or are you like me, still struggling and wrestling with doubt? Beloved, this is an amazing and beautiful reality that Jesus Christ has has won for us that we are being called to embrace by faith and to grow and mature and to deepen our trust so that indeed more and more of of who we are and how we live can be lived in in a trust in a trust that greets Jesus from the very beginning of the day and never lets go of him, embracing his, his, the glory of his resurrection and then practicing that resurrection as you go through the day. This is what the letter to the Ephesians has been about from start to finish. And as we uh, get uh, into chapter 6, beginning at verse 10 this morning, we get to the final point that the apostle is trying to, to give to this young church, a young church who's from its very beginning, it started in the midst of turmoil. So much turmoil that, that the city turned against the church, turned against the apostle Paul, drug him into the huge amphitheater there in Ephesus where they chanted for hours praising Artemis, crying out for Paul's blood. That was their start. And what the apostle knows is that those threats are real. They are genuine. The opposition is there. And it's not going to go away. And he goes on to say, and by the way, those threats that are out there aren't the only threats. There are going to be threats that rise up within the church as false teachers are going to come and try to take you captive. So you have to stand firm against the threats from outside and from the threats from the inside. And so how do we do that as God's people? Well, let's read this morning from Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. I am not going to attempt to hit all 10 verses today, but we're going to read it for context. The title of the sermon this morning is Putting on the New Self by Putting on the Whole Armor of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. 
Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, open our hearts and minds and our wills evermore to your revelation. You are an honest and truthful God. You do not hide yourself from us. You do not hide your intentions and purposes for us. And you do not hide the methods you use to achieve your ends. And so help us as your people to be willing to see what you are showing, to hear what you are saying, and to live what you have done in us in Christ. For we pray and ask this as a people admired in the ongoing fallen realities of a cursed and dark world. We bring things into the service this day, O oh God. We need you to clear them out by invading our hearts with the heavenly places. So bless us. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen to a church that has experienced nothing but opposition from its very start, that are told that the opposition is going to continue. One who was used by God to draw them out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light writes to them as one in chains in prison. There's a whole lot of doom there, isn't, isn't there? There's a whole lot of opportunity for being gloomy and doubtful. Our hope is in a Savior who died. Yeah. 
and the, the servants who are faithfully declaring this great news are in chains. Yeah, sign me up. And those of us who are embracing this good news, we now live under constant threat because our faith is an infringement. Our faith is, is something that is disrupting the community in which we live. I'm embracing a Christ who said that for those who, who receive me, even though a time will come when there will be perfect peace and rest, until that day, because you are now attached to me, you are now the, the uh, object of great opposition. Opposition that's going to come from outside of these walls as the world and the flesh and the devil will attempt to squeeze us into their mold. As threats will come from outside threatening your economic lives, threatening your literal lives, threatening the existence as, as those who name the name of Christ this is just a couple years before Nero starts to really get amped up and excited in the persecution of the church where he will be dipping believers in wax and lighting them on fire to provide illumination for garden parties. What does a church in that situation what do they need to hear? This is what Paul has been writing about. And from the very beginning of the letter, what, what he has done is he has tried to help the church understand herself and her, her place with God and her place with the world in light of the heavenly realities that have become yes and amen through the perfect and completed work of Jesus Christ. Now what we have looked at through the entirety of the liturgy this morning is, is uh, 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 the, 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 the redemptive arc of what God has been doing from the beginning. He made a world and everything belongs to Him. He is the Creator and yet... What are the conditions for the creation to be able to glorify and enjoy Him rather than live in fear of His judgment? What are the conditions that must be made in order to ascend the hill of the Lord and to be able to stand in His holy place? Well, those conditions are perfect righteousness as illustrated in clean hands, a pure heart, truthfulness, and covenant fidelity. You see, simply being created by God does not give someone immediate access to God. Because Adam sinned. 
and humanity fell. You see, when Adam and Eve were created, when they had not yet fallen into sin, they had an inherent invitation into the heavenly places. God had designed a, a, His temple presence in this new world that He had made, where the Garden of Eden was this place where God dwelled with His people, where there was no sin. And where the people of God were able to, to fellowship with him freely. They were able to enjoy him as he made himself known to them. He spoke to them. His presence was there with them. He gave them every good thing that their hearts could desire. He gave them beauty. He gave them sustenance. He was a God that was gushing his gifts on his people. But something went wrong. And when Adam and Eve fell and when they sinned, they had to leave that garden presence of God. And they were cast out. And a flaming sword moving every direction, guarding the way back in. How do you get back in? It is only by going through the sword. Who may ascend your holy hill? Who can stand in your holy presence? Jesus Christ is that one with clean hands and a pure heart who is utterly truthful to the core of his being and is covenantally faithful to, to his Father. He is the divine warrior that left the heavenly places who invaded into the fallen creation in order to get his people and to grab hold of them and to take them to himself. And as he returned to the heavenly places, the, the, his people, his bride, you and me, we are those who are caught up in the trains of the robes of his righteousness who ascend the hill with him. That's who you are in Jesus Christ. As the heavenly gates open and as the victorious divine warrior re-enters the heavenly places that he left, he left by himself, but he comes back with his bride. And he has given his bride a place at the throne where we can stand in the holy presence of God, not fearing His judgment, but enjoying His glory. Now the first three chapters of Ephesians are outlining specific doctrines of what Jesus did to accomplish all this. But when you boil it down, the heavenly warrior, the, the one who is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies he came and he fought and he won by him being covenantally faithful by him becoming a loving substitutionary sacrifice by his being powerfully risen from the dead in order that he would ascend 
back into the heavenly places. Where Paul says that because of what Jesus has accomplished for us and who we now are in Jesus, we are those in Christ who have received every spiritual blessing of the heavenly places. You're not lacking one of them. Now, you don't believe me, and I know you don't. But Jesus tells you you don't lack one. You've been made, chapter 2, you've been made alive, raised up, and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Because of Jesus' powerful resurrection from the dead, you are risen from the dead in him. And though you and I still live in this earth in the midst of this opposition, we do so as those who are already partaking of the resurrection life and power of Jesus Christ. Now the words that Paul uses there at the end of chapter 1 in order to explain this power and this strength that God used in raising Jesus from the dead, Paul goes on to say, that that strength and that power is now at work in every one of you who are in Christ. Chapter 6, verse 10. Paul tells you, be strengthened in the strength of his might. He is recalling the words from chapter 1. The strength of God's might that he used in raising Jesus from the dead that is powerfully at work in you who are in Christ. He says, cultivate that strength and that power in the church. Because when Jesus Christ fought and rescued his bride, he did not save her immediately out of the conflict. Because see, you and I were already part of the conflict. We were those who were slaves to sin. We were those who were slaves to the powers and principalities of the air, he says in chapter 2. We were dead in our sins. We were dead in our trespasses. We were following the ways of the world. We were participating in the counterfeit kingdom of Satan against God. But Christ, he snatched us out of that. But what has happened now is we're still in the midst of the opposition, except for now we are those who are targets because we are connected to Christ. We are not the perpetrators anymore. We are now the recipients. We are the targets. To be in Christ is to become a target of the opposition. And what the opposition wants to do, it wants to oppose everything about who you are and what you are called to be and to do in this world as ambassadors of the heavenly places. The enemy wants to oppose the word of God in you. The enemy wants to oppose the efficaciousness of the sacraments in you. The enemy wants to oppose the the resurrection life in you. The enemy wants to take the participation and the life, love, and mission of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and, and break that up and mess it up. So that our worship is, is hindered by sin. So that our fellowship is broken because of sin. 
where personal preferences and desires and intentions and motivations become reasons for the people of God to to go against one another instead of standing together. The enemy is an opposer. And he has set up a counterfeit kingdom. And he wants nothing more than to worm his way into your heart as an individual and into the fellowship of the church. He does not want the church defining itself by the heavenly realities. He wants the church to define itself by the earthly struggle. He does not want the church to define herself by by the life and mission of Jesus Christ, one of humility, one of sacrifice, one of service, and instead would love the church to embrace the world's idea of a Savior, one who shows outward glory and power and military presence so that the church doesn't want to sacrifice. The church wants to rule. wants to oppose but we are called to be strengthened in the strength of his might you absolutely have to be actively purposefully cultivating who you are in Christ as a participant in the resurrection already as one who is striving to practice the resurrection in every little detail of every day of your existence. Jesus is the victorious Christ who has freed us from death, sin, and the cosmic forces of darkness, and yet the cosmic forces of darkness are arrayed against him and against us. Jesus is the victorious Christ, even though he looks like a defeated Christ, right? What did the Jews think of a dying Savior? What did the Greeks think of a dying Savior? They thought it was hogwash. That's what it says in the Greek, hogwash. I'm joking. It says baloney. But who does Paul say that Jesus is? He is the one who has been exalted far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. He is the victorious Christ who has freed us from sin, death, and the cosmic forces of foes of darkness. He is the victorious Christ who has all things under his feet. Ephesians 1. And he is the one who has been made head over the church, who he now considers his fullness. Because of his victory, even though it didn't look like victory, we are his people, we are his body, we are his household, we are his temple presence here on earth. We are ambassadors of the heavenly places. And in chapter 3, what Paul tells us is that when we preach the unsearchable riches of Christ to those who are still enslaved to their sin and enslaved to death, when we reveal the light of Christ to those who are still mired in darkness, 
Paul tells us that we become a testimony of the manifold wisdom of God, where God says to the principalities and powers of the air, look what I'm doing, look at what you can't stop. Is this how you see yourself when you, when you get in the morning and you wake up? where my life is a testimony to the principalities and powers of the air that Jesus Christ is risen. That my very existence is a, is a manifestation and a witness of God's unstoppable power. That when I open His Word and when I spend time in prayer, when I filter my life through my baptism, when I remember the bread, the smell, and the taste of the cup, that I am a testimony to the dark cosmic forces that are arrayed against God. And there is nothing that they can do other than kill you. Right? Didn't Jesus tell us that? All they can do is kill you. They'll just send you to me faster. Beloved, you are a testimony to the risen Christ. When you breathe, when you eat, when you spend time with your wife and with your children, when you live in the community of faith, manifesting the humility of Christ to one another as we mutually submit ourselves to each other in the different relationships that we have in the church where leadership serves out of humility, where followers follow out of humility, where men and women and boys and girls are submitting to one another out of the reverence of Christ, where husbands and wives do this, where, where parents and children do this, where, where we do this with those in society regardless of how they respond to us. We do all of this as participants in the resurrection, practicing resurrection realities. That's who we are and that's what we are doing. And Paul says we do this by cultivating the strength of his might that powerfully raised Jesus from the dead and is at work in you. Cultivate the strength of his power. A heavenly reality. One that crushes sin and crushes death. And yes, one that brings you into great opposition. This is an old opposition. It is an opposition that goes back to the very beginning. An opposition that began in the heavenly places as Satan led a, a third of the angels to rebel against God. And then went after the image of God. When Satan, as the slippery, scheming, crafty, half-truth teller, came into the garden and starts confusing the image of God. This is an opposition that goes all the way back 
And it is an opposition that uh, has been played out over and over and over again. An opposition that, that led to, to man distrusting God, thinking that God was stingy, thinking that God was trying to keep something from them, thinking that there was more but God didn't want them to have it, and being tricked into thinking that the limits of God's word were somehow detrimental instead of protective and helpful and the way to have standing at his heavenly throne. And this is exactly what Satan does with you and with me. He loves to challenge you. Does God really want you to obey him like that? Look what that might cost you. And what do we do? We doubt. We are slow to respond. Sometimes we do the exact opposite. And notice, look, what did it look like in the garden? Husband versus wife. Wife versus husband. And then what happened? Well, then it became children versus children. And then what happened? It became societal. And through this questioning of God's limitations, through the questioning of God's good purposes, through the questioning, the questioning and the doubts and the struggles and the fears and the anxieties and the hesitancies, rather than cultivating a trust in the eternal God, there is a cultivation of trust in themselves. And beloved, you and I do this to this day. And we do it in our marriages. And we do it with our siblings. And we do that with society. And we do this in the church and we do it outside the church. And so the Apostle Paul tells us, we've got to remember that the opposition, the foe himself, that this is an opposition that is spiritual and it is scheming. It is spiritual and it is scheming. So infrequently will Satan or his dark forces of the counterfeit kingdom come to us to sow chaos and to sow division and to sow death. So infrequently do they do that by putting something horrifically sinful in front of us and trying to tempt us with that. Most of the time what is happening is there is a half-truth coming at you. There is, there is a difficult test that is put before you. There is a test for the resolve of the people of God to stand on the promises of God and instead of entrusting themselves. And you and I can see the effects of this all over the place. Division. Broken relationships. Mistrust. Abuse. Power being used for the self instead of for the people. 
We see it economically. We, we see it relationally. We, we see it in every aspect of life in the church and outside. And the challenge for you and for me is to have the perspective of the heavenly places to reorient us to what is happening. And to be willing, like our Savior Jesus Christ, to so delight in the law of God and trust of our Father that we put ourselves in his hands and we follow him and we trust him, especially when it doesn't make sense, when it requires sacrifice, when it feels scary. Because we have been cultivating the strength of his resurrection power that is at work within us. Our participation in the life and mission of the peacemaking Christ brings us into conflict with, but also determines how we relate to the dark cosmic forces that are arrayed against our Christ and his purposes. And what we remember is that his victory has brought us that, that freedom from the penalty of sin and the freedom from the power of the sin. Did you, did you catch the imagery in the gospel in Colossians 2? That Jesus Christ, as, as he received the curse for our sin onto himself, as he hung on that cursed tree, that as he was being cursed, that somehow became the way that he gained victory over, the, over his opposer, where Jesus is pictured as one who is standing with his foot on the throat of Satan and the counterfeit kingdom. Look back at, at Colossians 2.15 and look at the imagery that is there as Jesus, who was cursed through being cursed, becomes the conqueror. And you know why? Because the work of redemption was the fulfillment of an old promise. Yes, the conflict is old, but the promise of redemption is old as well. And going back to the garden in Genesis 3.15, God said to this man and to this woman and, and to this great enemy that even though they had rebelled and they had rejected and that there was now going to be conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. What was going to happen is that the seed of the woman would come and he would experience the curse. And in the midst of being cursed, he would deliver a head crushing blow to the seed of the serpent. God loves to do things like this. And he promised it from the beginning and he has been doing it through history and he has culminated it in the cross of Jesus Christ where sacrifice, where death is a means by which one experiences victory over sin and death. And so the conflict is old, but the promise of redemption is old as well. 
And the redemption that has been accomplished by Christ is a redemption that has freed us from the power, from the fear, from the anxiety of the enemy. But we have to cultivate that reality. Between the two advents of Christ, we stand with Christ against the tension that exists by cultivating the strength of his might within us rather than cultivating the limitations of ourselves. And so we are, as Paul has been saying, going back to chapter 4, we are to put on the new self and we are to put off the old self. We put off the old fears and the old weaknesses and we put on the trust of the new resurrection life of Christ within us. But not only do we cultivate the strength of his power, we then act in the strength of his power by putting on his armor. And we're going to close with this. Did you notice the descriptions of Jesus and God the Father from Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 59 in the call to confession? Did you notice the armor that was being described, that was being worn by God himself? When Paul tells us to put on the whole armor of God, he's not just calling us to put on the armor that God gives us. He is saying that. But he's also telling us to put on the armor that God himself wore as he fought for us and as he conquered our sin, as he conquered our death, and as he conquered all of his and our enemies. Beloved, the armor of God that you put on is the armor that God himself wears. And so as we cultivate the strength of his power, we wear the armor that he wears in order to act in his strength. Make no mistake, there are still flaming darts that are coming from the enemy. Make no mistake that the tension is real, the opposition is real. But what we face is nothing less than the tantrums of a defeated foe who have the foot of Jesus on his neck where we are pictured as standing with Christ with our feet on the enemy as well. And what Paul is encouraging us to do is to stand with Christ. And so cultivate the strength of his power and put on the armor that God wore, that he gifts to us in Jesus Christ. Because, beloved, we are warriors dressed in the armor of the divine warrior, fighting in the strength of his limitless might in order to stand in the holy place because of the standing that Jesus grants us through his victorious death and resurrection. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we, we need your help because there are so many threats that are from outside and from inside. And it is so easy for us to, to allow the threats to become ultimate and to allow the threats to define what is happening in our lives, how we see ourselves, how we engage the day. Or more importantly, Lord, how we tend to disengage. We get flustered. We get frustrated. We get gloomy and sad and we get anxious. We start to think that, that the sin that we are experiencing is, is all that is real. And so fill our hearts, Lord, with the realities of the heavenly places. So that as we cultivate your strength, the strength of the resurrection, we might indeed practice resurrection realities in the trust of your participation in our lives. And so, Lord, convince us that we cannot be any more intimately connected and united to Jesus Christ and through him to be so utterly and completely drawn into the life, love, and mission of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that we have become partakers of the divine nature. And then, Lord, help us to stand and to fight as we don't give in to chaos and death and destruction, but as we manifest the order and the life and the creativity of the new creation begun in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and still coming yet in a full consummation when our king returns and when he will finally reveal himself in a glorious and scary manifestation of military might as the Lord of hosts will come and overwhelm his enemies with the snap of his fingers. Lord, as we wait for that day to come and for the full freedom from the presence of sin that will be our existence, may we be motivated by the humility and love of Jesus Christ to take your grace, your mercy, your love, your grace, your truth, and your beauty out into the world that may you may use us as testimonies of the resurrected Christ and draw others out of sin and darkness and into the kingdom of your beloved Son. Do this, we pray, in us and through us for the glory of your great name and the good of your people. It is in Jesus' name that we pray.